0: morning everybody. I was thinking uh, earlier this week uh, as a, I was in prep for a while, I was thinking why is it that we're taking this year, 2021, why is it that we take this year and just dive into the Bible? Uh, and I just took a, a breath and thought about that and I thought here's, here's the reason. It's because I believe with all of my heart that God's word changes lives. It's changed mine, changed lots of yours, I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that these words that we're going through are not just words on the pages of a good book. There's so, so very much more. Uh, Like the the writer of Proverbs said this, "He said, those words, they are life to those who find them and they are health to their flesh. So again, I believe with all of my heart, God's word changes lives. And that's why we're doing this. Um, All right, now we have been finding out that the book of Genesis kind of maps out the beginning of life as we know it. And as we've kind of gone from the beginning up to where we are, we've looked at creation in the Garden of Eden, we looked at Adam and Eve, then the story of Cain and Abel, then Noah and the flood, then the story of the Tower of Babel. Last week we looked at Abraham and Sarah, and then Isaac. Now, one of the most ironic remarks I hear about the Bible it's when I hear somebody say these words or some version of this, they say, the Bible is it's just a book of pious, well-meaning advice that's not really relevant to the real world. To me, that is code for, I have never read the Bible. <laughs> that's what that means to me. You ever notice how many messed up families there are just in the book of Genesis? I mean, it, it can be like a who's who of dysfunction. I'm gonna just give you a quick review. Cain is jealous of his brother Abel, and he kills him. Lamech introduces polygamy to the world. Noah, the most righteous man of his generation, gets drunk and curses his grandson. Lot, when his home is surrounded by the residents of Sodom who want to violate his house guests, offers instead that they have his way with his daughters, that they have their way with his daughters, and then... We are told later on that his daughters get him drunk, they get impregnated by him, and we are told that Lot is the most righteous man in Sodom. That's scary. Abraham plays favorites between his sons, Jacob and Esau, and they become bitter enemies. Uh, Isaac plays favorites between his sons, Jacob and Esau, and they're estranged for 20 years. uh, Their their marriages, I mean, (laughs) go back to Jacob. Jacob ends up playing favorite with his sons. His son Joseph, um, he's he's obviously the favorite of all the 11 other sons. The brothers end up wanting to kill Joseph and then instead of doing that, they sell him off into foreign slavery. Uh, Beyond that, their marriages are disasters. Abraham sleeps with his wife's servant servant, and then they send the boy off into the wilderness at his wife's request. Isaac and Rebekah fight over which of their boys is gonna get the big blessing. Jacob marries two wives. They get into a fertility contest, and then he ends up with both of their maids as concubines as well. His first son, Reuben, sleeps with his father's mistress. Another son, Judah, sleeps with his his daughter-in-law when she disguised herself as a prostitute. She did this because she was childless since her first two husbands, Judah's sons, were both so wicked that God killed them both. This is not the Brady Bunch, friends. These people are messed up. They are messed up big time. They need Dr. Phil or Dr. Spock or Dr. Pepper, or Dr. Seuss. They need somebody and they need them pretty quick. So anybody here feeling a little bit better about your family now? <laughs> so here's a question. Why did the, the Bible writers include all this stuff? They didn't have to. You know, They could skip all the personal dirt and baggage and just tidy up the story a little bit. And we wonder as we read all this stuff, what in the world is going on here? Well, the author of Genesis is not morally confused. Remember, the Pentateuch is also the source of the Ten Commandments, which we'll look at in just a couple of weeks. It's the most morally influential writing in the history of the world. It's a work of genius, it really is. And the writer of Genesis really could have, if you think about it, could have just focused in on the rules of it all, you know, the thou shalt nots. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, shalt not commit adultery, and so on. He doesn't do that. Instead, he tells stories, because stories force you to think. When you read stories, you have to develop discernment, and you have to apply judgment. They're kind of often a a moral case study, and it studies real people in all of their complexity. And mostly the writer tells stories because the real hero of the Bible, there's no man or woman, it is God. God's the, the real hero. And God is working with real flesh and, blood, flesh and blood, sinful, fallen people that are living in a terribly fallen world. And sin, it shows us, does unspeakable damage. Now, the tendency of the human race is to try to hide our fallenness and our sin and pretend that our depravity is manageable. But it is not. The, the writer tells us these things to let us know that if God can be with these people, well then he can be with us. He can be with me. And that's the theme of so much of the Old Testament and especially what we're gonna be looking at this morning. We're gonna pick it up in Genesis 24. We're gonna see how God was with three great figures after Abraham in the book of Genesis. Isaac and then Jacob and then Joseph. And in each of these cases, there's this phrase that goes along with them that says, God was with them. God was with, say that with me. God was with them. In Genesis 24, one, here's what it says. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, and we know from Genesis 15 that this is most likely a guy by the name of Eleazar. He's the the chief servant of the household. It says, the one in charge of all he had. So what he says, put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord. That was a method of promise back in those days. And and it was an expression of complete trust. Put your hand under the thigh. I vote that we don't resurrect that (laughs) method, but they did it back then. Uh, verse 3, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I'm living, but will go back to my own country and to my relatives and get a wife for my son, Isaac. So the concern here is that Isaac not be tempted into idolatry by marrying a pagan Canaanite woman. And this theme, the danger of marrying someone Uh, that is not part of the people of God, not committed to God. That theme really kind of runs all the way through the New Testament and uh, through the Old Testament into the New. Paul, later on, the Apostle Paul talks about the New Testament, the importance of being equally yoked. You've probably heard that phrase before. So Abraham sends his chief of staff, Eleazar, off with a, a caravan with 10 loaded down camels, which is indication of great wealth on Abraham's part. Now, we need to understand the difficulty of the assignment that he gives to his chief of staff here. Eleazar has to go to a part of the world that he doesn't know. He's never been there before. He's got to go there, find Abraham's relatives, and talk them into sending their daughter away forever to marry a kid that they don't even know. And look at the first thing that he does on this journey. Verse 12, Then Eleazar prayed, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today, he says and show kindness to my master Abraham. So the very first thing that he does is to pray. You know, this is only the second recorded prayer in the whole Bible up until now. And Eleazar is not even a Hebrew guy, but he does trust in God. Now, I love this little detail that's found in verse 15. It says, before he finished praying, don't you love when prayers are answered before you even finished praying? Before he finished praying, Rebecca came out. So." He's still down on his knees, praying out, oh, sovereign Lord, and God's saying, yo, hey, look, I gave you eyes, look up, she's right there, use them. And Rebecca standing right in front of him. And in response to his prayer here in verse 19, now this is the sign that he asked for, it's very specific. And this is what it says, verse 19, when she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they've had enough to drink. It's exactly what he prayed for. Here's the kicker of the, sto- of the story. You know how much water a thirsty camel can drink? Up to 30 gallons. How many camels were there? 10. That's 300 gallons of water, potentially. I mean, this is a farm girl with some serious biceps. It's like female gun show at the watering hole today, okay? So Eleazar recognizes that God is at work even in this far country. Verse 22, it says, when the camels had finished drinking, he took out a gold ring for her nose and two large gold bracelets for her wrists. And Rebekah invites Eliezer to come to their family's home to lodge for the night. So we're seeing here that God is continuing to work and answer his prayer. But he knows this is going to take some wise persuasion on his part on, you know, regarding their daughter. Now, it turns out that Rebekah's brother is a guy by the name of Laban. Laban is a money guy and the heavy jewelry that Eleazar gives to Rebekah, it gets Laban's attention, and in pretty short order, his prayer to bring Rebekah with him is answered. And in verse 26, it says, "'The man bowed low and worshiped the Lord.'" Remember, this is a difficult assignment. He begins it in prayer, and he ends it in worship. This is a God deal all the way through. Now, there's a couple of terms I'd like us to get familiar with, just a little thimble full of theology here. The first word, uh, two words, the first one is the word transcendent, transcendent. Our God, the God of the Bible, is a transcendent God. It uh, basically means that our God is eternally self-sufficient apart from his creation. I mean, he was around way before he decided to create the world. But if people believe in a God who is only transcendent, they, involved in, they become involved in what's called deism. The idea of deism is that God creates the world and then he just throws it out there and has nothing to do with it. It's the, some people refer to it as the wind it up and walk away uh, sort of God, and uh, it's on its own. But the other word that theologians use to describe God is this word imminent, imminent. Now immanence, the whole idea of imminence is, is that God is continuously present and active in, its, in his creation. He's present with us. It's very similar to the idea of omnipresence with a little bit of a difference there. Omnipresence is just a spatial concept that God is everywhere all the time. But imminence means that God is everywhere active. He's active. God sees. God knows. God cares. And God works. Uh, The psalmist says, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. He's saying, wherever I go, God, you are there with me. So the writer of Genesis is telling us that this transcendent God who existed before creation, before time, who created himself, the, the heavens and the earth, this same God is imminent. So he's right here, and he's right now, and he's concerned about nomads and their servants like Eleazar here. He is the God Emmanuel, you've heard that, which means God with us. Emmanuel is just a different form of that same word, imminent, God with us. All right, now in uh, Genesis 26, the Lord appears to Isaac when there's a great famine in the land. And he tells him, he says, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you. Live here as a foreigner in this land and I will be with you and will bless you. I hereby confirm that I will give all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised your father, Abraham." So God is with Isaac his whole life. And then Isaac uh, and his wife give birth to two sons. One of them is called Jacob. Jacob, we're now turning to the Jacob story. Jacob is a con artist. He's a scammer, always looking for an angle. And he's like this, he's just like this, coming right out of the womb. In Genesis 25, it says, when the time came to give birth, Rebekah discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. <laughs> so they named him Esau. The other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Jacob literally means to grasp the heel but metaphorically in that language it means that it's meant to mean the deceiver the deceiver. Okay, verse 27 it says the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac who had a taste for wild game loved Esau, but Rebekah, mom loved Jacob. So, here's the family. Jacob his dad Isaac Dotes on Esau, the the brother here. Esau is a, he's a jock, he's a Marlboro man, okay? But he's not the brightest bulb on the chandelier, he's got some serious body hair issues. (laughs) Rebecca, mom, loves Jacob. And there's some real messed up family dynamics here. Rebecca, the mom, actually helps Jacob trick his dad into getting the family blessing for Jacob and she teaches him really how to be Jacob the deceiver. So God decides that Jacob is gonna have to go to character school. Life's gonna get pretty hard for Jacob. He's gonna have to travel a long, long ways from home. But God wants Jacob to know that he's still with him. In spite of his deceiving, in spite of his nature, in spite of his scheming with his mom, God is still with him. In Genesis 28, Jacob has a vision. There's kind of a big staircase coming from the heavens to the earth and there's angels that are ascending and descending. This is the kingdom of heaven intersecting with the kingdom of human life. God intersecting with man. So God is present and he's speaking to Jacob here. Genesis 28, 15, God says, I am with you. He said this before to him, but he says it again. I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. One day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I finish giving you everything i have promised you that's what god says to him i'm not done with you until i give you everything that i promised you lots of you need to hear that this morning i'm not finished with you god says till i give you everything that god has promised you now this is the beginning of jacob's transformation and in uh, the next chapter in chapter 29 he goes on to haran his grandfather abraham's old town this is no short journey on on foot He has to go from Canaan hundreds of miles back to Haran and he finds his uncle Laban. Here's Laban again. Now in Laban, Jacob meets his match because Laban is like the king of con artists. And Jacob begins this episode by seeing Laban's daughter, noticing Laban's daughter, Rachel. In Genesis 29 verse nine says, Rachel arrived with her father's flock for she was a shepherd. Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone from its mouth and watered his uncle's flock. Little background here. The stones that covered wells in those days were enormous. They weighed hundreds of pounds. They were designed to require several large shepherds working together to remove them because the purpose of them was to protect the well. So it was hard, hard to move these stones. Now Jacob, you'll remember, was the indoor boy, not a jock. He was a skinny jeans and scarf guy. (laughs) But he's so inspired by Rachel that he wants to show off. So it's like he's on love steroids all of a sudden and he can move this massive stone and he pushes it off the well, rolls it away. Now verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and he wept aloud. Question for the women. You ever go on a date, guy kisses you and then weeps aloud? guess that's one way to do it. I never tried that. <laughs> Laban has, uh, has two daughters here. Leah is the older one, but Jacob is in love here with Rachel. Now, he's so gone over Rachel that it says in verse 20, it says that he, he worked seven years to get Rachel. That was the contract. That was the deal. But it goes on to say, they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Next verse, verse 21. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. It's a little crass, isn't it? I mean, lots of my friends here have daughters. Is that how you wanna be approached by a prospective son-in-law? I don't know. Turns out, Jacob is messing with the wrong guy here. So on his wedding night, into his tent, wrapped in a veil, silent in the darkness, Laban sends in daughter number one, Leah, instead of Rachel. And it's told with some wit and great economy on the part of the writer, verse 25. When morning came, there was Leah. (laughs) Like, whoops! (laughs) And Jacob is not happy about this at all, so Jacob says to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Here's what's funny about this, that word deceived, is a form of Jacob's very own name. It's like he said, hey, why'd you pull a Jacob on me? (laughs) Now, Jacob sees what it's like to be on the receiving end of what he'd been dishing out his whole life. He's learning what it feels like to be deceived because Laban duped him. And Laban says, listen, he says, it's not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Now, this is a dig on Jacob. uh, Laban's getting a little dig in here, he's saying around here, we don't allow the grabby younger child to steal the rights of an older one. Does that ring any bells for you, Jacob? So for over 14 years now, Jacob Jacob goes to character school. Jacob the deceiver learns about the pain of deception and he actually begins to change, God is with him. And he finally drums up the courage to go back and face his brother Esau that he stole and left a long time ago. It's a courageous thing to do. And he has this great encounter with God along the way where Jacob here, this man who who lived in deceit and manipulation and fear his whole life, he wrestles all night with someone. Turns out he he finds out that it's the angel of the Lord. And uh, God says here, I'm gonna give you a new name. You were called Jacob the deceiver, giving you a new name from now on you'll be Israel, the one who struggles with God. That's your new name, Israel. So Jacob the deceiver is Israel now. It's not perfect, not by a long shot, but fundamentally he's changed. God is still with him. Remember? God says he's with you. It's really based on his character, not ours. God is with him. And we're going to look at the the next generation in Genesis 37, but before we do that, Let's take a real quick look at the other branch of the family tree, Jacob's brother Esau. In Genesis 36, it says, this is the account of Esau, that is Edom, the people of Esau. If you've been reading Genesis at home, you've seen this phrase before, this is the account of, this is the account of. That's how Genesis is organized we see genesis in 50 chapters but those chapters were not there originally they were put in hundreds of years later after genesis had been written the writer divides genesis up into 10 sections each one comes with a heading this is the account of if you go all the way back so this is the account of the heavens and the earth then in genesis 5 this is the account of adam's line genesis 6 this is the account of noah goes on and on like that one whole section gets devoted to Esau's people, the Edomites. Now, what would be really striking about this to the original readers is that the Edomites end up being Israel's bitter enemies. They hate each other. I mean, more prophetic words of judgment were spoken against Edom than against any other country. The whole book of Obadiah consists of prophetic words of judgments against the Edomites. They were just bitter enemies. So any Israelite reading this would say, "Uh, why do we gotta interrupt our good story to hear about the Edomites? What are they doing in our book anyway? Get them out of our book. Here's why they're in there. The Edomites matter to God too. They do. God wants his people to know. People, those that you think of as enemies, well they matter to me. And it's consistent with what Jesus would say hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, I tell you, like in Matthew five, I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's counterintuitive, I know, but it is the way of God. All right, now this is for next week, but Genesis 37 is the story of Joseph. Joseph was was the son of Jacob's old age. He was number 11 son out of 12, out of the 12 boys. And not just that, Joseph was the first son of Rachel, the wife that Jacob really loved. Dad's favorite. Now, you would think that after what Jacob went through, that maybe he'd be really sensitive and he'd be careful to never show favoritism. Or not. (laughs) And the story story of Joseph is an epic story, if there ever was one. I mean, it is jaw-dropping. The more you understand about this incredible, amazing life of Joseph. It's one of the best stories in the entire Bible, and we'll get into that next week. So why don't you bow your heads and we'll pray. Well, God, again, we thank you so much for your living, active word. Word that changed my life. Word that changed lives of so many people in this room. So God, as we continue to apply ourselves to your word, would you continue to bring it to life for us so that we can absorb it and find out what you're speaking to us this day from what you did so long ago, because your word, Lord, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and we receive it, Lord, by faith. So God, I pray that you bless every moment that we spend in your word and use it to change us more and more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. We believe you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.